Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, hi. Hello, everyone. It's me, Anna, a host of this podcast. A couple of things before we get to this week's episode. First, in the interest of transparency, this is an edited version of a bonus episode from Behind the Paywall. We weren't able to record this week. Amber's working on grad school applications, and I got the vaccine booster a couple days ago, and it knocked me on my butt. Don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled to be boosted and am growing more powerful and alluring by the day, but woof. So... Rather than leave you without any episode this week, we bring you a portion of the episode of Dirt After Dark, in which Amber treated me to some ancient astronomy. Heavy quotes around both. Finally, more shouts out! Thank you, thank you, thank you to Joseph, Nico, Heidi, Ben, and Mary. Thanks to you, we are over 100 subscribers, and that means that the Patreon special gift is in the works. So if you are a subscriber and you want this token of our appreciation, please make sure that your address is up to date so we can get it to you. And if you want to join the Patreon, you will still get all of those benefits that come along with the tier that you choose. And we'd love to have you. So head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast to learn more. Okay, that's all. On with the show. And welcome to Dirt After Dark, the monthly top-tier episode of The Dirt dedicated to all the bits too spicy to list on the menu. This month, as promised, Amber is ruining my good mood with some ancient astronomy that turns out is neither ancient nor astronomy. Um, I'm going to do my best to take us on a cogent journey. (laughs) The 8.7 kicks in at some point. Yeah, well. Um, But, listener beware, caveat auditor, um... Good good Latin on the fly. This could get a little windy. So take your Dramamine, crack the windows, and keep your eyes fixed straight ahead. I don't want anybody throwing the car. (laughs) So let me start by saying that there is absolutely a possibility of another planet in our solar system beyond the eight canon planets and our wee friend Pluto. There's a theorized planet nine that has never been observed to date, which is kind of a problem. Um... A theorized because of how the planet orbits see, behave. See, this is now listeners Sorry. are knowing that like this is all new to Anna. <laughs> She's the, but I was told could, not to scroll down know, in the I script. Know. But it could, it could. So yeah, it's it's theorized by people that like know about space um, because it could account for a pattern. It could be a way to explain this pattern of clustering among orbits of a handful of extreme trans-Neptunian objects. Etnos, which are objects that exist in the furthest edges of our solar system, so the furthest edge of what is affected by the central sun. Are people who study that called etnographers? Get out. (laughs) I can't. This is my house. Get out. I won't. Um, So an etno is between 150 and 250 AUs. That's an astronomical unit. Um. If you don't remember or you never knew, nope. an astronomical unit is the um, distance from the sun to Earth. Well, that's very self-centered of us. I mean, it's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, astronomical, so we do, um, we don't, we don't, they do, I'm not an ast- astronomer, but um, in looking at planets... Uh, mass is determined by like earth masses like that's the unit well it's like saying how many of, of these could fit into belgium like the idea exactly, yeah it's exactly like that yeah. <laughs> um so for your reference so to 150 and 250 au's that may seem like meaningless to you so for your reference neptune is 30 au's so neptune is the furthest like true planet um my very educated mother just served us Nectarines. <laughs> it used to be nice pies. See, I never had mnemonics. I just learned them. Which is fine, too. Fine. But, like, 
I, I probably could have saved some space. So planet nine uh, has been theorized to be five to ten Earth masses um, because that's how big it would need to be uh, to have the gravitational effect on those etnos. Um, but it's also been put forward since it's never been observed, and we're pretty good at looking into space, um, that their quirky orbits are really just the result of observational biases. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, because it's because things are very far away. But just to like really hammer that home, we are one because this is going to become relevant when we're talking about things coming from space. Okay. <laughs> um, so we are one astronomical unit from the sun. Right. At nose are between 150 and 250 astronomical units, and we don't know what's up with them. So okay, like that's, that's how far really far it has to be for us to like not have any idea what's happening. It's too far. Okay. A light year is a little bit over 63,241 AUs, and a light year is how far a photon can travel in 300 in a solar year, a Earth solar year. Right. So a year for a unit of light is a light year. Well, I'm just saying. No, like, no. So like how far it can get. No, I know. I, and that's like. And so what we are doing, what, when, you t- when you look at the stars, you are seeing photons that have made it from wherever they were emitted. So Proxima Centauri, we're on like three quarters of the way through page one. Don't worry. There's not going to be a lot of science. So Proxima Centauri um, is is the closest star to us. I, yep. Um, and it's in the content, it's in the um, constellation Centaurus. Okay. So that's why Proxima Centauri, it's the closest one in Centaur. Is Alpha Centauri also in? Alpha Centauri is the brightest. But it's also in that constellation. It's also in that constellation. Okay, okay. So there aren't really, um, I don't know of any other stars that are known by like being close. But stars are... You'd think our sun would be, but... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's not in a, it's not in a constellation. I know. Uh, that, fair right? point. But that's, fair that's, point. How we, that's how you identify stars. So stars are... So we talked about the, um, the 28 mansions in mm-hmm. the... I'm um, uh, pretty sure I left that in. Gosh, I hope so. Because <laughs> um, it was really interesting. Um, the 28 mansions in um, the Chinese star catalog... And so it's a way to break up the sky into 28 spaces. That's Through the, which celestial bodies progress. Specifically one. The, the moon. The moon. Um, and so the way that stars are cataloged in modern astronomy is they are associated with their, um, unless there's like something wild happening with them, they may have like their own code. Like a, a, a patch to like attached to them, like if they're a pulsar. space code, if they're like a pulsar or they're uh, and a pulsar is something that behaves differently and like spits out um, beams, like okay. at a and a pulse, like it, it, it spits fire. No, it spits like radio signals. I was making a rap joke. Okay, I'm, t- I'm talking about space here. Okay. Um, so you have a constellation, and the con- the stars in that constellation are ordered by their brightness. So. Okay. So you have that's why that you makes have, sense. Yeah. Um, like Alpha Lyrae is the is star in, Vega. Okay. Because Vega it's is in the Lyra. brightest star in Lyra. Okay. But we know Vega as Vega because it's bright. It's like the brightest star. So okay. Sirius is Alpha Canis Majori. Okay. So, so the stars have their own names, but they're designated by their location lots and of brightness. Stars are named, and those stars are those those names come from. Gosh, I think it's the maybe the Almagest, but it comes from Arabic. It comes from Islamic science. So the names came first, and then the the stars with names had their names before they got their appellations with uh, within the constellation. Okay. okay. But Proxima Centauri is the closest star to us. Okay. It is four point two six light years away. That's so far. That is four point two six times sixty three thousand two hundred forty one. To think of how many times further away from us as we are from the sun. 260,000. Yeah. Like it's far. It's really far. So remember 150 to 250 astronomical units. We don't know what's up. So this is farther than that. Getting that far. We, there, we, there isn't a whole lot we can know. Okay. But I I accept that. We've made huge strides in the last 10, 15 years in terms of knowing about exoplanets and things, but we were going from knowing nothing. (laughs) So going from like the realm of the theoretical 
which some of that stuff has borne out. Um, sure. But there's such little that we know. If you've ever seen the movie Melancholia... Nope. Well, which I recommend if you'd like to witness the experience of major depression. I don't need to do that. I don't recommend if you have experienced major depression. Nope, I'm good. um, You will be familiar with the basic premise of the Nibiru Cataclysm. If you aren't, what happens sort of at the beginning, like in the first frames and then at the very end, is a planet with a long-ass period rolls into the solar system and crashes into Earth. So the the period is the the time it takes for for it to make an orbit. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, the, so the idea is that Nibiru is something that has an extremely long period that goes way, way out to Far. the point where we wouldn't see... We wouldn't know it was there. But then then it it comes back. back Um, And so if you'll remember, listeners and Anna, Mm. like Nibiru is an astronomical location in Mesopotamian astronomical texts. The Babylonian corpus of astronomical and and astrological data called the Mol Apen identifies Nibiru with Jupiter. And so for, so I put the word, so it's also known as like this, the throne of Marduk. Which is really interesting that, like, Jupiter is Jupiter. And has and, been, like, the and patriarchal is, god yeah, of the... Because of it's, the, like, the brightest... It's the biggest one. Yeah, no, I it's get it. It's the brightest one. And so, like... And so Does, it's just interesting that... Dumb, dumb question. Does Jupiter have a particularly long period? No. Okay. No, Jupiter's just up there. Okay. But, but um, Nibiru has also been other... Okay. And also there's stuff that we don't understand because Great. as Anna will see in mm. this tablet, I'm going to have a reader real quick. Um, this is the first tablet of the Moapen. And mm. I put the word Moapen here for Anna to look at. It's um, triangle, line, triangle, line, don't triangle, don't triangle. Do don't do that. Okay. Um, so, but this is just like a fun, a serological fact. So okay. Moapen is the first, as we were talking about with the um, Enuma Elish, I think we were talking about. Mm. Um, no, a uh, different one. But all of them, it's the first words of the text that are used as right, the title for the text. Yeah. Like Atrahasis is the first two texts of the Sumerian flood myth and like the creation epic. So Mul Apen <laughs> is the first of... I, I was just thinking, it, <laughs> in this naming convention, Paddington Bear, the book would be known as Mr. and Mrs. Brown first met Paddington on a railway station. Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Yeah. Like that would be the name of the book. So Mul Apen is actually Sumerian. Okay. Um, and we know that it's, it is easy to tell that it's Sumerian because it's in all caps, Mul Apen, because it's two signs. Mul is the first sign. And what does that sign look like to you? It's three asterisks yeah. in a triangle. And well, so, by default in a triangle because there's three of yeah. them, Anna, so, you dingus. Um, um, so Mul is the logogram that indicates a star. It so looks you, like some stars. It looks like That's some great. Stars. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so you put it before you put it before the name of a of a star. Um, Oppen um, is a logogram that because I've talked about this before that that logograms can so you can use Sumerian words in Akkadian to either stand for it can either be the word with the meaning or the sound of the word. Okay. Sort of like how hieroglyphs also have a... I don't know anything about hieroglyphs. Okay. So I can't speak to that. Alrighty. But you can use it as... Uh, you can do it like a rebus. Okay. Or you can do like, it like... Um, like piecing symbols and sounds together. Yeah. Or... Like sometimes in a rebus, the symbols mean you're like putting the sounds together to make a new word. Or sometimes you're using the symbols in the rebus to say like... You know, dog. You have a picture of an eye and a picture of a deer, and you can say, a deer, like idea. Yeah. So that's the Molopin. I didn't mention that in the episode, but there's a little bonus of, like, the Molopin is, like, a star catlog, and... And it's a tablet. The fir- it's several tablets. Oh, okay, so this is just the first small. one yeah. of it. This okay. is the one at the British Museum, and I'll include it in the show notes. What, just out of curiosity, what's the scale? Because I see a picture, but I don't, I don't have any sense of... I don't actually know. So, like, handheld? Yeah, they're usually handheld. So they're okay. really, really The size small. of a phone or something? Yeah. Okay. Okay. If that. Oh, God, that's... Some are... The, yeah. So, uh, hard to read. Yeah. <laughs> it is densely cuneiformed. So, Nibiru is usually a star. It's usually a star, okay. or it's like a planet, or it's like a, a space of like transit. Like it's a space mm. in the in it's a space in the sky that things can move across. Okay. And in the episode, I um, excerpted from that article that 
um, paper that Neek wrote um, quoting something from the omens, the omens that were used. Okay. Um, and they're talking about, like, when Nibiru drags. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and, like, the gods will not accept supplications, yeah. and everything so will be is, terrible. Is that something where, like, it's not, like, things aren't moving as quickly as you expect, or the star itself is Yeah, maybe because it's farther away and the speed isn't... Sure. But, so, Nibiru could be a specific celestial object, or it could be, a, it could a be like, a transit. Space, like a, okay. Like a... A relationship, a movement relationship. Okay, is what I understand it. I understand. So Zachariah Sitchin, who we remember, this guy doesn't know Sumerian. Does not read so it. You now, everyone listening now, know more Sumerian than Zachariah <laughs> Sitchin probably did. Um, so he pitched it as the twelfth planet because you remember that when we talked about ancient aliens before and like ancient astronauts, that there's that one seal impression with the extra planets on it. Yeah, just like extra. Spheres. Yeah. I guess we got to hand it to him that he never said that it was going to crash into us. He didn't say that. He did not say that. What, he, he, what did he say? He did say that Anunnaki had come from it and given Sumerian civilization, so maybe we don't have to hand it to him. I don't completely remember. Is Anunnaki a person? The, the Anunnaki. There, are so, they a race? Oh, boy. Yeah. Sorry, is that talk, a big question? talk to space weirdos, definitely. Okay. Um, but if you talk to Assyriologists or probably Sumerians... Um, it the Anunnaki are sort of like a primer, primordial like deity thing. Okay, they aren't a cosmological. They aren't demons. They aren't demigods. They aren't really gods. Proto being. They're they're just primordial beings. Okay, that um, live in the underworld. But Zechariah Sitchin was like, it's Zach- a race. Zechariah Sitchin thought that they were that they were the first sages that came. And this Kay. is like, Kay. this is Adapa, I remember. and then I remember. became Oanis. Okay, okay. And so, fish people. Oh. So, this has come up before. So I look like fish, <laughs> talk like people. Don't worry, we've got time for, well, they'll come back. Mm. Someone we absolutely do not have to hand it to is Nancy Leader. Who's and she? Nancy Leader is a lady from Wisconsin who is extremely well known in this corner of the internet mm. and has been for like, 25 years that sounds um, that sounds right <laughs> she cemented nibiru's place as a planet that was hurtling toward us so in 1995 she created a website called zeta talk and in 1999 she published a book with an extremely well, look at this little guy i mean <laughs> so it looks like terrible things are happening but this guy's partying yeah so, so. <laughs> it's like a very like poly pocket ass like color palette yeah oh well i never had poly pockets um, but they were this color. Okay, sort of like a matte purple, like a matte purple and a teal. And so it's Zeta talk direct answers from the Zeta reticuli people. Anna, given what you've learned about astronomy at the beginning of this episode, what is Zeta reticuli? The least bright star in the constellation that I assume is called something like Reticulus. Reticulum. Reticulum. That's very um, and close. And Zeta isn't the least bright. It is oh, the right. alpha, beta, gamma, delta, Oh, I forgot zeta. my Greek alphabet. It's no, the fifth it would star. be omega. Omega would be the... Would be the least bright. Okay. Well, not necessarily. It would be the 24th alpha, most beta, bright. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, Some, some constellations are quite big. Okay, so it's, it's a... And you go to like alpha prime. A less... Oh, my God. So it's the fifth most... It's the fifth brightest star in the constellation reticulum. So really, I was about half the right. <laughs> I know what a because reti- a gladiator who fights with the net is called a. Ret- I only know this because of a reticulated python, which has a net pattern on it. All right. Well, we I have, learned that before I learned Latin. We have different um, frameworks but, of understanding so, the world. So this. So the, the. Tell me more about Nancy. The, well, I'm going to tell you about the Zeta reticulans first. Okay. So the Zeta reticulans are often known as the Greys. Uh, yeah, I. Um, they're like the sort of like. They're a gray version of the like the weed smoking alien. Yeah, like the little green man. Yeah. So, so the, those like very almond shaped eyes, giant cranium, very triangular chin, like, very gumby body. Yeah, and so there are these waves crashing. There's a there's there's lightning. lightning. There's uh, you see a city that is getting flooded. You see uh, and and also volcano. simultaneously dumped on by a volcano. And yeah. and then our our little reticulant friend, he's what standing, is he pointing at? He's standing in the foreground and pointing up at a planet that I assume is Nibiru. Just hurtling at us. Okay. So Nancy wrote this book. I, I admit it, it's a, it's a refreshing change from Mad Wright's book. Yeah. She has all these direct answers because she has a telepathic link with them, which is oh, described great for as her. what I'm going to open now and read to you. 
So this is all from Zeta Talk online since 1995. Um, and but I know exactly what that website looks like. <laughs> is it GeoCities? It is. It is a GeoCities yes! website. And so it has like all of these um, just sort of like prophecy kind of stuff, like short messages that she's, she's transcribed from them. And the reason why she gets this... <clears throat> Nancy is frequently asked for the source of her information, which is ourselves. This has been explained. They are speaking. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Which is ourselves, the Zeta Reticulous. Sorry. Okay. This has been explained repeatedly and is well documented on the Zeta Talk website. Big ass to Nancy. Nancy is a contactee who has volunteered to be a communicator during these troubled times. This was was written in 2000. I was going to say, which troubled times? Well, don't worry. You're going to hear all about them. Okay. She volunteered before birth, her spirit volunteering, and has had no problems during this incarnation with her mission. (sighs) To enhance her ability to understand the concepts we are presenting, she allowed herself to be modified in her late 20s with with a bit of our brain tissue, DNA compatible with hers, which allows her to better receive our telepathic communication. Oh, it's amazing that human-compatible DNA results in a being that looks like an X-file. It, and that's actually, that's, that's one of the species, that's one of the, the types that were in the X-Files, but this is the one that, like, people talk, I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> Listeners, I remind you that Amber has, uh, if this hasn't come up before, Amber has a categorical knowledge of all episodes of the X-Files. It's amazing. <laughs> It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. The portion of her brain thus modified affects only telepathic communications, so Nancy is otherwise herself. Thus, the source of her information is truly us, none other. Uh, so, um, she, so she's somebody who, she's somebody who um, uh, believes that she has been abducted mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, now, modified, and and now has like a, a telepathic link conduit to yeah. a to these aliens. So, this was written on. Actually, do you want to read it? It's the one. Love to cowgirl, take me away. The term 12th planet is not scientifically exact, but relates to the historical and widely read book that Sitchin, Zachariah Sitchin, wrote titled The Twelfth Planet. In this book, he explains that the ancient visitors from this traveling comet, comet? Yeah. Considered the moon to be a planet and counted the sun as the first. The first what? Planet. It's the first planet. That's how there's 12. That's how you ended up with 12. If you start with like the sun mm, being one. Sun's not a planet. Okay. You know what? The periodic Earth cataclysms caused by the 12th planet have been in place for eons since the Earth was cold and without life. As this statement will raise questions in some minds, let us explain. The Earth was cold as the sun had not yet lit. <laughs> the pilot was out. <laughs> he had maintenance to come by. <laughs> All this is a oh oh all this is a matter of astrophysics yeah, and not relevant to the discussion <laughs> at hand. 
Sorry for asking. The 12th planet, or giant comet, assumed its orbit around the sun due to gravitational and motion... My cat has issues with this. Gravitational and motion issues, which were at play, coming out of what some Earthlings refer to as the Big Bang. This was, in fact, only a little bang. A local affair, however. I'm done. Okay, so... um the um, I agree, Izzy. Summer 1995 is when Hale and Bob. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first mm-hmm. um, identified comet Hale Bob that right. would that came closest in 97. But we'll get back to that. Remember that name being very funny to young me. Yeah, Hale Bob. Um, Hale Bob. This is not Comet As You See Fit. That's coming up later. Great. Um, Great, great, great. So, because I'm about to make you so mad. (laughs) So, according to Zeta Talk and like-minded netizens of the mid-90s, Planet X was on its way from the depths of space, and as it approached Earth, it would start spraying us with magnetic particles. And one of the missives from the Zeta Zeta Reticulans, they described it as a hose. Of magnetic particles that would... A particle hose. Yeah, and I was like, yee. Um, <laughs> so those particles would affect our magnetic field. Magnets, how do they work? And its size, and so the size of planet X. Okay. Of, and it's coming from behind the sun. Oh, so we won't see it coming. We won't see it coming. Um, until it's too late. So its size would impact our gravitational field and rotation until finally an event and so they talk about like the aftertime and like surviving the event and the mm. event is that the earth would stop rotating and the magnetic pole would flip huh which would create all of those things that the little dude was pointing at in the cover lightning volcano yeah. tidal wave um, so anna you know a little bit of something about how the magnetic pole flipping causes earthquakes and tidal waves and extinctions of causes me to write an article for sapiens which you can check out at sapiens.org um but um yeah i don't know if you want to speak to that at all well it's just just like what like a magnetic pole shift yeah so um it turns out that the magnetic poles as we think of them aren't anchored to where you know to to the top and bottom of our planet the way you think they might be. Um, in fact, there have been magnetic pole shifts in the past, and generally what happens and what's what's been sort of documented and, and how we understand it now, what's happened in the past is that the magnetic pole sort of wanderings, because they, they don't necessarily completely flip always. They might just sort of come unmoored and just yeah. tootle around a little bit. Um, and generally what that means is that, yes, there are fluctuations in Earth's magnetic field, which is part of what protects us from solar and other cosmic radiation. And so in the case of the last one that happened, which was around 42,000 years ago, um, it is suggested that the sort of blip in our magnetic field that happened um, resulted in a lot more bombardment of the Earth with cosmic radiation and particularly solar radiation, meaning that areas around the Earth's equator became much harsher in terms of their climate. And so this may have affected um, the survival of certain species and, and may have you know, kind of caused a knock-on effect that, that caused the extinction of lots of species. But it's, not, it's still not completely understood. So what I'm hearing is um, earthquakes... Lightning, Banks volcanoes, failed. FEMA camps, the elite, adrenochrome, etc. Okay. Um, yeah. So thanks for for sharing that, and I'll include Anna's article in the show notes. Thank you. Um, but as as Planet X moves along, things will pick up. They'll pick back up. So do you want to read this next one? Sure. ZetaTalk.com slash pole shift. Pole pole shift. T sixty nine. Nice, 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 nice. Let me... Okay. <clears throat> Wait, I thought it was going to hit us. No, this one isn't going to hit us. Okay, it goes by. After the 12th planet passes, the Earth's rotation begins again... Oh, thank God. Begins again due to the factors that guide rotation of the planets in your solar system. Which, okay, the so factors. I don't know a ton about Newtonian physics. I'm assuming there's a string hanging off of the Earth and you yank it like you're starting a gyroscope. 
Could be. That could be one of the factors. But I I don't know a ton about Newtonian physics. I will admit that. But I do know that angular momentum Mm. is something that would make it impossible for the Earth to stop rotating and then start again. No, because it... mm. I'm gonna shall I just continue? like like the laws of physics do not permit. Well, as this as thing. we understand them, I mean, who knows? I mean, we got factors. Yeah, we've got factors to consider. It's true. Many humans assume rotation to be simply leftover motion resulting from some past activity, such as the Big Bang. But rotation is guided. They all jump to the left. But rotation is guided by gravitational and electromagnetic influences on the liquid cores of planets and moons. That is, in fact, correct. Parts of the core move away from or toward these influences, dragging the well, okay, dragging the crust with it. Magnets and it's just like spraying, How do they work? just like <laughs> blasting us with. And as the turning motion brings those parts of the core back to where they don't want to be, Bussing. motion <laughs> motion is reinstituted and continued. For the Earth, frozen in place at the moment of passage, rotation begins again within a day after the 12th planet moves from its influential place between Earth and the Sun. Rotation restarts at first slowly, but then picking up speed until a day on planet Earth is much as it used to be. So she's acknowledging that a day is changing. Just as rotation... This is like the Scopes Monkey Trial... Or actually, it's like Inherit the Wind, the play where he's like, what if God meant the first day to be a billion years? Okay, it's a great play. Just as rotation stops within a day, just so rotation returns within a day, much to the relief of the frantic survivors who fear the long day or night they have been experiencing will never end. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. There are like so there are tons of there's tons of information about like what's going to happen, and really the through line of all of it is that the event, yeah, um, they look like a cross between end times apocalyptica and like age of Aquarius vibrating, and so when we think about cataclysmic events of an astronomical bent that are both could be the end of world but could possibly be just the beginning of a new age. What does that make you think of? Sounds like the Maya calendar to me. Yeah. So um, do you want to... It's so satisfying when I correctly pick up on what you're cueing me for when it's not in the script. That makes me feel... I know. I was like, oh, I didn't write it out. I was like, maybe she'll get it. Maybe she'll get it. (laughs) I got it. The Maya calendar? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is just a system of recording time that's cyclical. Like a calendar. Yeah, it's a calendar. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, at the end of the, the year or, like, the designated period, whatever it is, <laughs> you start over. But, yeah. like, I guess the way that the the Maya calendar was recorded originally, well, I don't know. It's in, been interpreted as, like, it just yeah. stops. And so, um, so it was calculated by some people that um, the end of the Mayan calendar was... It was going to end on the winter solstice in 2012. Uh, yeah. Um, I have a great article here by um, an astronomer. I think he I think he is an astronomer, actually. Um, but I could be wrong. But I have it cited there. But So John W. Hoops mm-hmm. um, wrote an article entitled A Critical History of 2012 Mythology, uh, which is great it's really good Uh, so i'm going to read a bit of it and i think it does a really good job of sort of 
I think a lot of our listeners probably know about like the Maya calendar and the Maya apocalypse and like the 2012 and just sort of like, but this is a really interesting look at how we got here. Okay. Um, and so I recommend you read the article in full. Hoops writes. The 2012 phenomenon is the result of speculative academic hypotheses, some discarded long ago and some not. Very kind. Scholarship on the ancient Maya, academic and otherwise, has included many crackpots. Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Lord Kingsborough, who commissioned facsimiles of Mesoamerican codices and descriptions of Maya ruins in the 1830s, believed Mesoamericans were the lost tribes of Israel. It's the nose, isn't it? It's the Semitic cast to the features. Yeah. Swarthy and the nose. Like, like oofa doofa. That phrase, Semitic cast to the features, has been burned into my brain for like 14 years. Charles Brassois de Bourbois. Wow. Discoverer of the Popova and Bishop Landa's Relation, found narratives of past destructions that led him to speculate about similarities between Maya culture and Plato's Atlantis. No. Asserting direct connections with the lost continent. No. Uh, Waldeck illustrated Maya reliefs with classical and Egyptian embellishments. Desiree Charnet suggested that the Toltecs were Aryans who had migrated to Mexico from the Himalayas. Augustus Le Plongeon, the first excavator of Chichen Itza, identified the roots of Freemasonry through ancient Egyptian and Atlantis to the sorry, through ancient Egypt and Atlantis to the Yucatan some 11,500 years ago. His work inspired Ignatius Donnelly. Oh, that guy. <laughs> to trace that there's so much before Ignatius Donnelly. Like yeah. That, like on the, on the shoulders of giants sat that idiot. Um, so, <laughs> the shoulders of giant idiots. <laughs> so Donnelly uh, traced not only the Maya, but all civilizations to Atlantis and assigned uh, catastrophism to a role in ancient history. The persistence today of discarded theories about the Maya reveals a separate esoteric tradition of scholarship that has accompanied academic Maya studies as much as astrology has accompanied astronomy. So, Anna, what do you remember about the subject of ancient astronauts? Racism. Cool. That's what I remember. <laughs> do you re- That's what I got. I mean, I'm glad that you remembered like, the most important part. Okay. Do you remember? <laughs> so, okay. Gosh, okay. I'm just so eager to please, and yet I have so little to contribute. Okay, so um, as we discussed last time, they came from Nibiru. Yes. I mentioned this earlier this episode. Well, so these are, yeah. the Anunnaki. I understand that these are beings who came from Nibiru and influenced major civilizations. That gave us civilization. Yeah, great. like how to do agriculture and stuff. Yep. It's their fault. Um, You're that life in ruins. (laughs) So, okay, we've got another origin point for our interstellar companions. So not Nibiru. But not Nibiru. Okay. This is interstellar. Oh, right. Okay. This time it's Sirius. Okay, so what planet is it? <laughs> um, this is what the, um, um, the Smith song Girlfriend in a Coma is about. Girlfriend in a Coma, I know. I know it's Sirius. If you mention the Smiths, I'm going to do my Morrissey impression. Oh, no. So, okay. Have you ever heard... So, do you know what Sirius is? The dog star. Sirius is the dog star. Woof, woof. Um, But, Anna, have you ever heard of the 1976 book, The Serious Mystery? Of course not. Great. Which is also kind of surprising. Like, I don't know how... I mean, I'm so, like, deep into this. How could anyone not (laughs) know? Like, it's just sort of, like, I don't know. Well, The Serious Mystery (laughs) is by Robert Temple. A guy... A A guy... (laughs) Guys and gals. A guy (laughs) quite fixated on ethnographic reports from the late 1940s by... Sorry, when's he kicking around? Oh, 1976. 1976, he publishes The Serious Mystery. He had been kicking around for a couple decades. Okay, and then ethnographic reports from the 40s. So the ethnographic reports came out in the 1940s by the French anthropologists Marcel Griel and Germain Ziterlin about the Dogon people of West Africa in what is today Mali and Burkina Faso. Real people. Yep. Real people who still exist. And so according to Griot and Dieterlin, who studied the Dogon from 1931 until 1956, um, they were let in on ancestral knowledge linked to the Dogon's, the Dogon's animist religion. Um, so it turns out that 
the, that knowledge included a lot of astronomical facts that they couldn't have possibly accessed with the technology found in their traditional society. You sure? Like the rings of Saturn. So they, that they existed? Okay. Yeah, that, that Saturn has rings. Okay. And, like, this is, you know, in, this was 1948. That and you, and traditional like, society granted, you cannot see Africa. the rings you of Saturn. You can't see the rings of Africa. I bless the rings <laughs> down in Africa. So, um, the existence of four moons orbiting Jupiter. Too small um, to see. Yeah. Too small to or see. Or too far moons. away, rather. Yeah. They're not that small. Yeah, so you, they're, they're, uh, to the naked eye, too they're not low magnitude to yeah. be seen. Yeah, um, and two companions to the star Sirius. Our little dog pals. Yeah, so because Sirius is a isn't just it's a star system. Yeah. Um, so I, I did these actually know super that. secret mythologies were an extension of of the mythos about their primordial ancestor spirits, the Namo. Okay. A little more background on the Namo from Wikipedia. Okay. Um, because I don't know a lot about this. So I just got, Whoa. I know, I know, I know. You're not supposed to scroll ahead, Anna. It's not, I'm not scrolling. My <laughs> eyes are just there. The, the word namos is derived from a Dogon word meaning to make one drink. Much like you and me in this episode. <laughs> namos are usually described as amphibious, hermaphroditic, fish-like creatures. Fish people, fish people. Folk art depictions of Namos show creatures with humanoid upper torsos, legs, feet, and a fish-like lower, lower torso and tail. Look like fish. Talk like... Excuse me. My cat's in a drawer. <laughs> so Namos are also referred to as masters of the water. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, my cat has exited to Narnia through the Tupperware drawer. I'm so, so sorry. Continue. Namos are also referred to as masters of the water. The monitors, lizards, and the teachers. I mean, Dana, just let me. Okay, no, give me your thoughts. <laughs> no, I just, I just. Since this was ethnographic information from the 1940s, it's just like the Namos is, is like there. You can look at. Um, I think they call them fetishes of like Namos. Like there are. No, like, I, the, I believe the, that this exists. I just am assuming that it was massively misinterpreted. Well, but. Tell me. So the informant for uh, Griot and Dieterlin about this was an elderly man in the community. One guy? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> who, uh, how perceptive. Um, who, according to Wikipedia, I'm quoting again, um, a shared that a belief that the Namos were inhabitants of a world circling the star Sirius... Um, the Namos descended from the sky in a vessel accompanied by fire and thunder. And, like, I also saw, like, a great wind. Okay. Um, sure. After arriving, the Namos created a reservoir of water and subsequently dived into the water. Oh, nice. Because they are amphibious. Fish people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Dogon legend states that the Namos required a watery environment in which to live. According to the myth related to Griol and Diderlin, quote, the Namo divided his body among men to feed them. That is why it, it is also said that the universe had drunk of his body. The Namo also made men drink. He gave all his life principles to human beings. End quote. So does that sound like anything? It was a little body and blood of Christy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. But also, what's that sound like with what? amphibious beings showing up and giving them life's principles? Uh, but besides, like, lizard people? Exactly. Oh, okay. Do uh, yeah, you want like. more than that? No. Yeah, so Temple's book um, decided to figure out how the Dogon got this mythology. Because obviously, like, they couldn't have come up with it. So, like, it's, like, doubly racist. <laughs> it's racist and, like, weirdly infantilized. Or, like, just, oh, like, oh, yeah. these people but, are too dumb to... But, like, they're too, they're, they're too dumb to have been, like, picked by... The space things that had to have come because people were too dumb to come up with it. Like it's just like it's a weird racist <laughs> catch twenty two. It's it's like incepted itself. So, um, so he links the Dogon up to the Bronze Age civilizations of Mesopotamia and Egypt, and Barassus' story of Oannes. Which, if you remember, Barassus Look was like fish talk like people. If you remember, Barassus was um, a story that it was just kind of like if like. If if someone, if a drunk person told you Sumerian, like Mesopotamian mythology when you were about eight, 
And then today you were like, this is what I remember. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And it's just like taking some things as literal that were clearly metaphorical. Kind of a wobbly filter. And and so it was like, well, it was like, came and he was a fish person. And like looking at, like looking at the, um, the sages and like looking at the, um, you know, the guys with carps on their head. Oh, the, yeah, the, the Apkalu. Yeah, the Apkalu. Yeah. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the Serious Mystery, my the magnum book, opus, is one of the cornerstones of ancient aliens. Great. But the ethnographic reportage by Griot and Dieterlin wasn't dismissed without discussion. So, astronomer Ian Ridpath, okay, that other guy wasn't an astronomer. This guy is an astronomer. Just, All right. Sorry, like, Mr. or Dr. Hoop. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Ian Ridpath tackled this from an astronomical perspective, um, in an article for Skeptical Inquirer. Uh, I'm inclined to appreciate this. Yeah. So please indulge me as I read a rather long excerpt. I shall. Thank you. Let's look more skeptically at the Dogon legend. Immediately, we encounter a surprise. The Dogon maintain that Sirius has two companions, not one. These companions have male and female attributes, respectively. They also... um, they had a, in their reports, they had a drawing that was like a reproduction of what their informant drew on the ground, like did like a diagram okay. for them. And so this is, Again, this one guy. One dude. Yep. Um, um, I can't remember his name. I apologize to that man. In I mean, memory. yeah, uh, I was going to say, <laughs> if he was so, an old man in 1940-whatever. Um it, may, it seems that they are not able to be interpreted literally as stars, but as fertility symbols. Nowhere is this better shown than in a Dogon sand diagram of the complete Sirius system. Shown in the illustration redrawn... Its description, given in the caption from information by Griot and Diderlin, is clearly symbolic. Temple chooses to interpret it literally. No. <laughs> On pages uh, 23 and 25 of his book, he gives his own modified version of this diagram... Retaining the symbol for Sirius. So he just made some stuff up? He modified the diagram. He made some stuff up. Um, he retains the symbol for Sirius, one of the positions of Sirius B, and the surrounding oval. All else is omitted. He then interprets the surrounding oval meant to represent the egg of the world as the elliptical orbit of Sirius B around Sirius A, even though the symbol equated with Sirius B is drawn lying within the oval, not on it. This is Temple's basis for saying that the Dogon know that Sirius B orbits Sirius A in an ellipse. So, and so Sirius- Temple's reimagining of an existing diagram is his basis for this thing that he is saying. Yeah. So, um, so I guess he could say that, like, this is what they were getting at. Says Temple. Yeah. Okay. And um, so the Dogon are also supposed to know that Sirius B orbits every 50 years. Uh, so there's a 50-year period. Great. But what do they actually say? Mm-hmm. Griot and Dieterlin put it as follows, quote, uh, do you want to do this in a French accent? The period of the orbit is counted double, that is 100 years, because the, the what? The Siguis? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, si, Siguis. Siguis. Si. What? I think it's Sigwis. Okay, d'accord. Are convenient pairs of twins, so as to insist on the basic principle of twinness. The Sigwis ceremony, referred to as a ceremony of the renovation of the world that is celebrated every 60 years, not 50. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, they're very simple people. And the twinness referred to here is an important Dogon concept, which explains why they believe Sirius must have two companions. Does it? Um, it definitely doesn't. Alrighty. So the Sirius star cluster is uh, a, it is a very, uh, it is the big, the big bright star. Bark, bark. And then a, um, it's a got friends. Yeah. Okay. That is, is like trapped by it. It's like a little yappy dog that's around a big friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the nugget. <laughs> so the whole Dogon, and so I'm going back to um, his article here. The okay. whole Dogon legend of Sirius and its companions is riddled with ambiguities, contradictions, and downright errors, at least if we try to interpret it literally. But what can we make of the Dogon statement that Sirius B is the smallest and heaviest star consisting of a, a 
heavy metal known as Sagala. Wait, sorry. The star is made out of a heavy metal named Sagala. I know, but is this real or made up? Because I've lost track. Anna, what are stars made out of? Oh, right. Heavy metals, obviously. Oh, no. Sirius B was certainly the smallest and heaviest star known in the 1920s when the super dense nature of the white dwarfs was becoming understood. The material of which white dwarfs are made is indeed compressed more densely than metal. Now, though, hundreds of white dwarfs are known, not to mention neutron stars, which are far smaller and denser. Any visiting spaceman would clearly have known about these as well as black holes. Perhaps one would forgive Robert Temple for believing that the Dogon had been visited by men from Sirius if their legend specifically dated their, their legend specifically stated so, but it does not. <laughs> Nowhere in his 290-page book does Temple offer one specific statement from the Dogon so to substantiate his ancient astronaut's claim. Well, he didn't go, right? He's just no, he's going off of what was published what, by like 25 years yeah, Okay, before. okay. The best he does is on page 217, where he reports the Dogon say, quote, Potolo, Sirius B, and Sirius were once where the sun is now. Okay. Okay. Sure. Of this ambiguous statement, Temple comments, quote, That seems as good a way as any to describe coming to our solar system from the Sirius system and leaving those stars for our star, the sun. End quote. But, but this cannot conceal the fact that the most serious mystery is based on Temple's own <laughs> unwarranted assumption. And with that, listeners, we'll wrap up this excerpt from the Dirt After Dark episode, just as things, if you can believe it, take a turn for the even weirder. But we hope you enjoyed this offering, uh, and we hope that you are staying safe out there, and uh, we love you. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You can also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.